year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. This morning, we're going to emphasize the first part of that verse, which is, in the year that King Uzziah died. Thank you, Lord, for this, your word. I pray that you'd help us to understand, put it in context, see where, where it is and why, and then what it means to us today and how that we can benefit from your word, from your direction, from the relationship that your people have had with you. And uh, Lord, how that we can, we can uh, be drawn closer to you in that understanding and in that vision of who you really are. So Lord, I pray that you'd help us. Uh, be with us this morning. We ask your help and your presence and your um, influence in this service. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> As we continue in the series, we started with Jehoshaphat's legacy. We looked at Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat's lion all the way down. Uh, the first sermon that we saw were the seeds of his own destruction that he put into his own kingdom and family in the lack of separation that God dealt with him very clearly with. And then the next week we saw when little Joash was put on the throne, he was hidden from the wicked queen for so many years, and then uh, at, at a young age, at seven, he was put on the throne. And the reason why that victory took place was because of the treasures, the the trophies of David that, that he stocked the house of God with and in the, the trophy case of all the shields and the swords of David. That was a, a sermon that we looked at. And then we looked at our own trophy case. The next, wheel we, uh, the next uh, week we saw the, the, the sermon called Training Wheels. And that was when Joash was uh, going along with Jehoiada and, and had the props and had the, the, the outside uh, help. He was fine. And those training wheels were fine. Everything was fine until they took the training wheels off. And then I uh, just uh, went into uh, disarray. And then we looked at cutting your losses. The next king that came along and did some bonehead things, and God rebuked him for it. And he says, well, man, I've already spent a lot. What do I do? And he says, wait, it's just get rid of, cut your losses and start doing right. Just stop going in the wrong direction. If you're in a hole, just stop digging. And that's what God really told him to do, stop digging. And so that's going the right direction. And, and he did, actually, there. But then we saw how that he messed up and and that how he was actually um, uh, against the man of God that uh, had that confrontation. And uh, uh, we, talk, we, we talked about agreeing with the government as he, as he said, hey, wait a minute, are you speaking the king's council? Are you saying the same thing that we're saying here in the, in the government? And, of course, we looked at where that applies to us today, whether we agree with the government or not, depending on God's laws. Last week, we looked at Uzziah. This is the great-great-grandson, I guess, of Jehoshaphat. And we, the title of the message was, Till He Was Strong. He was helped marvelously until he was strong, until he uh, rose to the place where there was some accomplishments and some strength and some wisdom that God had given him and some blessings. And then when he was strong, he became proud. Oh, my goodness. We looked at the life and the deeds of King Uzziah. For the most part of his life, a great king did some great things. Um, a clear warning was mined from the field of Uzziah's lifespan. The warning of growing independent of God, <clears throat> sufficient of ourselves, proud and haughty in our own efforts, and finally he became presumptuous upon God as he drifted away from his dependence upon God and was judged severely 
ended up with leprosy. And that's where we ended up in his life last week. Now this morning we're looking into the event that brought the prophet Isaiah to the vision and to the exposure to God that he had that we just read about in Isaiah chapter 6. And it was because of King Uzziah's death. You see, it was significant that this event was mentioned in the year that King Uzziah died. I saw the Lord. It was significant that the event of Uzziah's death was mentioned to introduce Isaiah's vision of God in the year that King Uzziah died. I saw. Hands down, the real message and the impact of Isaiah's text is what he saw. He saw the Lord, his vision of God, God's majesty and his holiness and his contrast to the society and to the familiarity of Isaiah's own soul's exposure to sin. And uh, that entire uh, um, experience that he had with facing the Lord. But even before we venture into a clear display of God and that the passage affords us, the question is, how did Isaiah get into a clear display of God that the passage affords us? How did Isaiah get here? What brought him to see God, to realize God, to this exposure of the Lord? And that's what we zero in on today, the catastrophe that brought him to the Lord. And it was a catastrophe. For some 52 years, Uzziah was on the throne, and like I said, for the most part of that, just wonderful, and was with the Lord and did some great things. God, God used him to do some great things. But then, in his failure at the end, and being struck with leprosy, being judged of God, brought him to, to, to question, brought him to a, a, a crisis in his life. It's a shame that sometimes the only way that we learn to turn to God is in a catastrophe. I'm sorry to say that's sometimes the way it is. As long as all things are going well, no need. We're doing good. I've got this, God. No worries. Nowhere is this any more manifest than in the life of King Saul in chapter 14 of 1 Samuel. Or, uh, you don't have to turn there, just listen and I'll read it. It's a story of where Israel faces off with the Philistines and Saul and his forces are frozen with fear. They don't know what to do. Um, so King Saul, who had a smattering of righteousness, a, 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 a veneer of righteousness, he goes to God and he asks, asks God what to do. And God is not freely communicating with him at that point of his life because of his disobedience and his rebellions and stubbornness, his foolishness. We find Saul, because of, of all of what he's going through, he's attempting to get direction from God. Verse number 18 of 1 Samuel 14, it says this, And Saul said unto, him, unto Ahiah, Bring hither the ark of God, for the ark of God was at that time the children of Israel. And it came to pass that while Saul talked unto the priest, now the reason why he was talking unto the priest, the reason why he was bringing forth the ark of God was to find God's will. We're in a mess, God. We need to know what to do. And, and uh, we don't know what to do. And so he's wanting to inquire of God. So while he's talking to the priest, that the noise that was in the host of the Philistines went on and increased. You see what was taking place here. We won't get into the story, but Jonathan was used of God to do some great things, and God was blessing, and, and the, the, the battle was turning, and they're actually going into victory. 
And so he hears of this while he's talking to the priest and saying, hey, bring the ark. We need to find out what God wants us to do. And, and uh, while he, he talked, he hears this noise. And the Bible says, and Saul said unto the priest, withdraw thine hand. Hey, we, we don't need that anymore. You know what? We've got victory here. Forget it. For, forget about talking to God. Verse number 20, and Saul and all the people that were with him assembled themselves and they came to the battle and it goes on in that story. He said, hey, we don't need God anymore. Uh, you know what? We, I thought I needed God, but I've got this. I, I've got it covered. Saul sought God till he figured that he had this covered and then he quickly dropped this dependence on God thing. What a shame that we mirror this independence from God, but we do. As long as we need God and we're, we're uh, looking to Him and we're in, uh, inquiring of the Lord, and then when God blesses us and when God gives us things and when God gives us strength and uh, prosperity and, and blessing and his, his protection, then we seem to not need God. And we're going to do this on our own. We're just going to go and do our own thing. Oftentimes, God must keep His effective servants in a continual state of weakness or oppression or crisis to stay dependent upon him. That's a shame, but that's what happens sometimes. That when we're, when we're in need, when we're in crisis, man, God is everything. We need him. I need thee every hour until I'm okay, until I'm strong, and then I could just do this on my own. Well, Second Corinthians 12, 9 says, And he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. I don't like to hear that. I like to be strong. I like to be in control. I like to have things. I like to, to, to be sufficient. I don't like to be weak. I don't like to, to feel like I'm not in control. But the Bible says his strength is made perfect in weakness. He goes on to say, Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in mine infirmities, Paul says, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. He'd rather be weak. He'd rather be frail. So that he can have the power of Christ. He goes on to say, Therefore I take pleasure in infirmities and reproaches and necessities and persecutions and distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong. See, our weakness means his strength. I don't like to be weak. I don't like to not be in charge. I don't know about you, but I, I, I despise that. But the Bible says our weakness equals his strength. See, I've prayed for deliverance many, many times for different things in my life. Maybe there's something that's keeping me down or oppressive or something. And I don't like that. I don't want to be here. God, please deliver me. But maybe, just maybe that God wants me there. Maybe it is that God wants me to have the lack at that point. Maybe it is that God wants me to be dependent upon him at that point and at that, that time in my life. I don't know. Like I say, sometimes I, I want to be free from that and want to be uh, on top. But maybe the Lord desires my weakness so he can show himself strong. What do you think? So let's look at the Isaiah 6 passage. Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 6, verse number 1. Let's read the first few verses. In the year that King Uzziah died, again, like I say, that's significant, folks. God had to remove some things, some false strength and everything, so that he could be shown. In the year that King Uzziah died, 
I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And his train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphims. Each one had six wings. With twain he covered his face. With twain he covered his feet. With twain he did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the post of the door moved at the voice of him that cried. And the house was filled with smoke. Then said I, Woe is me! For I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Goodness, what a reaction to his exposure to God. See, Isaiah's ministry, that prophet Isaiah, that ministry began back, although only for a short time, he began under Uzziah's reign. Isaiah chapter 1, verse number 1 says, The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Now he was long standing and went through many generations of kings, but he started under King Uzziah. Uzziah was struck with leprosy. You know that story, last week we went over this. When he became proud, when he said, hey, listen, I've, I've got this, I don't need God, and, and he was going to just go ahead and presume to, to offer some things, and he was out of place, he was doing what he shouldn't do, and he said, hey, listen, God's going to play by my rules. No, God doesn't play by my rules. God had to strike him down, and, and it was an awful demise. It was an awful judgment. Leprosy, as a, as a person is, is infected with leprosy and they, they become deformed and they're actually parts of their body fall off because they have no nerve endings any longer at, at their extremities. It's just an awful, uh, uh, miserable death. You had to be taken away from the public and live in a leper colony and live, live away from the, from the throne and from family. And he was struck with leprosy. And that was similar to Judah. Similar to Israel, the nation. Isaiah chapter 1, verse number 4. This is what the nation of Israel was going through. God evaluates them as a sinful nation. A people laden with iniquity. A seed of evildoers. Children that are corruptors. They have forsaken the Lord. They have provoked the Holy One of Israel unto anger. They are gone away backward. Why should you be stricken any more? You will revolt more and more. The whole head is sick, the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot even unto the head, there is no soundness in it but wounds and bruises and putrefying sores. Folks, this is what he's, he's, he's describing Israel. Oh no, not the way it looked like um, on, the, on the newscasts or the, or the, uh, the headlines on the newspapers in the, in, the, in the cities and in the nation. No, no. This was what God saw Israel to be like. This was the spiritual condition. He, he, he says they're stricken and their head is sick and their whole heart is affected and, and, and there's no soundness in the flesh. Wounds and bruises and putrefying sores. Goes on to say, they have not been closed, neither bound up, neither mollified with ointment. That's the, the, that's the look of a leper. You see, the, the nation of Israel was struck with a spiritual leprosy, a judgment of God, just like Uzziah was struck with it. Struck with leprosy also for the same reasons. 
They were blessed. They were strengthened. They were fortified. But then they became proud and independent of God and thankless. They didn't recognize God any longer. And God says, no, no. Those blessings were blessings I gave you and you can no longer have any, any remove, yank them. And they were in the very condition that King Uzziah was, a leper. And you see, in Isaiah's life, there was calamity. Uzziah's good reign of 52 years plus of blessings and prosperity and divine protection ended badly in judgment. And when that happened, you know, when you have a leader, a ruler, especially somebody that's good and that's doing well and that's honoring God and and the nation is being blessed and it's like, yes, he's a, a good leader and things are going well and it's like, great, everything's on top. But then God judges him and there, there must have been this attitude, not just that Isaiah had, but the entire nation. Oh, no. What's going on here? What now? <coughs> Stability is gone. Strength is gone. Protection is gone. And the nation went into chastisement, the entire nation altogether. That's the landscape of Isaiah's vision of coming to see the Lord. In the year that King Uzziah died, it was that time I saw the Lord. Of all of the negative, of all of the calamity, of all of the catastrophe, failure, the weakness, the disorientation that they were experiencing, there was a great good out of the whole scene. Isaiah saw God. In the judgment, Isaiah saw God. He, he focused his eyes upon the Lord. What a great and accurate picture of who God is and God's actual character. He really saw somewhat of, of who this God is that he serves. And in seeing God for who he is, he also saw himself for he, who he was and how that he was contrasted to this God and lacking. So before they could come to an exposure to God, they, there needed to be a removal of the temporary strength that they enjoyed. Did you hear what I said? Before they came to, to have this experience and this exposure to God, there's some things needed to be removed. They needed to be shaken up. Nobody likes the failures and the losses and the pain. Let me ask you something. What calamity drove you to God? For many of us, it was some kind of a crisis. Some kind of a a, a terrible thing that happened in our life that, that allowed us to stop and then to focus on the Lord. I've seen God use the setbacks and the failures in life to open eyes, to switch our focus, to draw us to Christ. I've known some who have gone through marriages that have failed. My sister, the, the, one of the first in our family that came to Christ, my brother was first to, to be saved, and he came home and, and told others about the Lord Jesus Christ and his life and, and uh, what the Lord meant to him. And, and my sister Grace at the time, she was going through an awful divorce, an awful, there was infidelity, and it was just, it was awful. I'm telling you, it was just uh, uh, somewhat of a perfect marriage, just destroyed. And she was devastated. And I remember, I was just a, a little guy at the time and, you know, listening to what was going on here. And, and uh, my brother would tell her, Grace, you need the Lord. She, and she would say, Saul, I, I, I've got these problems. You don't understand. I, I, I found this is what happened and, and this is what been revealed to me. And uh, I've got these problems. And... <laughs> My brother would say, Grace, you need the Lord. And she'd say, no, you don't understand. 
I have these problems. This is what's taking place. And, and this is devastating. And I don't know what to do. And I don't know what I'm going to do. Grace, you need the Lord. And I remember her finally getting frustrated and saying, so I've got real problems here, okay? I've got real problems. <laughs> you know what? She needed the Lord. She didn't know it then. But she needed the Lord. Finally, when all resources were, were exhausted, she came to the Lord. I remember that Sunday. We were in the church like this, and she was probably about halfway back where Brother Richard is here. And uh, she was in that service, and conviction began to, to just really, you know, just work on her. And it was invitation time, and, and, and the preacher got down here, and, and, he, was, and he was saying, listen, you, what you need to do is you need to come to Christ. And about that time, she just got out in the aisle and started hoofing. I mean, she was coming down, and, and the preacher saw what was coming. You know, he's, he's, serious, you know, he's putting out his hand, he's going to shake her, and she's just, <laughs> and she's just, just all over him, just everything, makeup, everything, just everywhere, you know, and just, and, and she bawled like a baby. You know what? That morning, she came to Christ. And, you know, after that, you'd ask her, hey, Grace, tell me what the, and she would say, I was blind, but now I see I needed the Lord the whole time. I needed the Lord. And you know what? It was crisis that brought her there. Like I say, it's a shame that sometimes it's a crisis. It's something that, that happens wrong, that, that will bring us to the place to where we look to God. For some, it's marriages. For some, it's a loss, loss of health. Maybe you, you, you'll hear that um, awful determination in the doctor's office and he, he pronounces uh, uh, some kind of a disease or terminal uh, situation where there's nowhere else you can go to and nothing else you can do and, but to go to the great physician. And I've seen some come to Christ that way or even death. And some have died and and the, 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 the pain and the grief of loss will bring a person to go to the only one that can help. Or when a person's facing death. Now everybody doesn't know when their time is, and sometimes it's a slow death, and sometimes there's an accident or a heart attack, and it's gone and it's immediately. But if that death is lingering, then the person that, that is on death's row will come to understand their their frailty and their, and their moment in time and, and there's an eternity that's, that's staring them in the face and they'll come to Christ. Sometimes there's uh, those things that will, will uh, bring a person to um, looking to the Lord. I remember <clears throat> the first person ever saved here at Wooden Valley Baptist Church was a man named Clyde. Clyde... Uh, Fox, he, he and his wife, Betty, came. They were the first two people ever came to Wooden Valley Baptist Church. We were preaching. I was just preaching to my family <laughs> for weeks on end. This was the, the truth. At the beginning, just me and my family, you know, knocking doors and telling people, you know, hey, that's radio spots and advertisements and everything, expecting great crowds. And it was just me and my family, you know, two kids at the time, so there's us four. No more. <laughs> and that's it, you know. And I uh, started working with a, a family, a gal that uh, she was um, a, um, a CNA like myself, certified nurse's assistant and working in a nursing home. And uh, it was a graveyard shift. They used us to move the bodies because 
uh, in the night, the old people, if they're not, they don't move themselves and they need to actually move uh, their, their bodies every three, four hours so they don't get bed sores, that kind of thing. So they needed men to work. So anyway, so here I am. I'm working um, and wondering what in the world did God bring me to Washington for? <laughs> you know, here working and nobody comes to church and whatever. You know, so the first family that ever came was a person that, that they put me with. It was Betty. It was Clyde's wife. Um, uh, and was working with her, got to know her, her family, and uh, they were here from Eastern Washington. And they came to Eastern Washington, uh, to Western Washington, because um, Clyde lost his sight. 27 years old, as a diabetic, he wasn't taking care of himself, whatever, and he lost his sight. I mean, from having sight to stone cold blind at 27, he would be the rest of his life. And so they needed to teach him how to live. He needed to learn Braille, you know, how to uh, work with a dog and diff different things. And so he was here going through that training and going through that schooling. And that's why they were here on this side. Well, they didn't know anybody here. And, and uh, uh, so we became friends. My family and I, we had small kids. They had kids about the same age. Uh, we became friends, uh, invited them to come to church. They actually came. Uh, we would go over to their house. They would come up, to, come to our house, and we, we befriended them. He, he didn't come because he was listening to the gospel or wanted the gospel at all. They came because we were their friends. That was it. Period. weren't interested in the word of God or anything. Would actually just kind of put up with that, you know. But it meant a lot to us, so they would come to church and you know, whatever. But but they and they came. They came faithful. The very first family that ever came, you know. Um, I remember uh, one time I uh, was preaching and the power went out. You know, whenever wind comes around here, it knocks out, you know, power. And preaching along in a little Grange Hall facility and power went out. Stone cold black is that night. And, you know, you could hear the, the, you can hear whatever on the, but you couldn't see a thing, you know. And I stopped and I said, well, I, I guess we should go home. And I could hear Clyde said, why, preacher, go on. <laughs> I said, okay, I remember the message, and so I just went ahead and preached it without reading it. <laughs> but anyway, um, so Clyde and Betty came, and, and not getting into their salvation when he finally got saved. It was, the, it was the neatest thing in the whole world. It was wonderful. It was absolutely wonderful. He came to know Christ and like I say, the reason why he ever got saved, not because he was searching or not because he wanted to hear us, not because he was, because we were his friends. We befriended him and he came for us. And it was wonderful to, to see him get saved. And then they came to church because they loved the Lord, you know. And then they, they learned and they grew and it was just wonderful to, to see the growth there and everything else. And I remember before they moved back, I remember one thing he said, and um, I mean, uh, like I say, they, they became good friends, and, and uh, I remember he was a good mechanic prior to the time he ever got uh, blind, and uh, uh, we had a van at the time, and, and uh, there were some things that, I'm not a good, good mechanic, you know, I, I'm not exactly sure where to put the gas almost, but, you know, that's about me, but anyway, so, but he was a good mechanic, and so he came over to, to help uh, one night work on the van, you know, and he knew what he was doing, I didn't, but I could hold a light which didn't mean anything to him, you know. <laughs> I, re I remember holding the light and apologizing. Oh, man, I'm sorry, Clyde, I can't even get it. He says, preacher, <laughs> I don't need the light. <laughs> anyway, so, um, but I remember talking to him and before they moved back, 
And uh, nobody would say this. And he, he wouldn't come out and exactly say this, but I knew exactly what he meant. We were talking about, you know, setbacks and this and that, and he talked about losing his sight. And this is what he said. He said, Preacher, had I never lost my sight, I would have not come this way. We would have not met. We wouldn't have come to church. I would have probably not heard the gospel and not been saved. He said, but you know, I'm going to heaven now. And I'm going to see throughout eternity. And I'm not saying I'm glad I got blind, but God used that. I said, Clyde, you're right. You're absolutely right. You know, folks, sometimes God uses calamity. Sometimes God uses setbacks, things that we, don't, we are not looking forward to. We don't, we don't uh, uh, welcome, but it brings us to look to him. Sometimes there's business losses. Sometimes there's family losses. Sometimes there's whatever. But you know what? In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. There was a removal necessary before the exposure to God. A catastrophe was needed in Isaiah's life to remove that which impeded his vision, if you will. So let's take a look at what needed to be removed. First of all, the, uh, I, I tell you what was removed is number one, frail help. Back in Second Chronicles chapter 26, verse 16, and where we were last week and talking about Uzziah and his life and what he went through, the Bible says, but when he was strong... You see, all the things that Uzziah trusted in were blessings that were given by God. Blessings that were given by God, never intended for him to trust or hide in. Those things couldn't bless. Those things that God gave, they couldn't fulfill. They couldn't help Uzziah. They couldn't do those. Those things couldn't really protect him. Only God could. See, God gave those blessings, and what happened was Uzziah looked to the strength and those blessings instead of looking to God. And so that frail help had to be removed. And yet we glory in the blessings of God. See, he's given us freedom. He's given us providence, health to a certain degree. Uh, sometimes if the Lord's given you a family, given you a spouse, children, <clears throat> then we look to those things after we get those things as if though they're God. Though we, we uplift those things and, and bow down to them and, and put them in first place, top in our life of priority. Wait a minute. That's not God. Those are just the blessings that God gives us. As if they bless us. No, no. Those things or people or blessings in our life, we've got to remember we worship God. We enjoy His blessings. But we seem to worship blessings and merely enjoy God. Do you understand what I said? We worship God and we enjoy His blessings. If, you're, if the blessings in your life have distorted into what you're trusting in, then they've got to be removed so that you can deal with God. Things cannot help you. Only God can help. People can't give you what only God can give you. And see, those things that God blessed Uzziah with had to be removed <clears throat> so that they could actually deal with God. Tell you what else was removed, not just frail help, but futile honor. In 2 Chronicles 26, verse 16, on into that verse, it says, His heart was lifted up to his destruction. 
See, he was lifted up. He was propped up by pride. The previous verse tells us that his strength and his wisdom were the headlines in the local papers. It says, and his name spread far abroad, for he was marvelously helped till he was strong. See, he began to believe the reviews about how strong he was. The only thing was he, he left out God, the reason that he was strong. Yes, he was blessed, and yes, God gave him position and wisdom and, and, and uh, protection and safety and all that, but it was because God gave him those things. God uh, gave him the strength, and then he forgets God, like it didn't come from God. And, and this is no more in the spiritual, uh, no more true in the, than in the spiritual world also. Pride is a killer. Our hearts are lifted up to our own destruction. We think that we're something. We think that because God has given us an amount of of spiritual victory in our lives, that that's because of us. That's because of what we do. Listen, folks, we're nothing without him. We would never have any success without him. Apart from his blessings, we are insignificant. And we remain that, that way. Not a one of us have anything to boast of but we, we tend to boast. That's futile honor. And I tell you what else was removed was false health. You see, that, uh, the life of Uzziah in Second Chronicles 26, 19, it says the leprosy rose up in his forehead. You know the story and how it happened. <clears throat> oh, so Uzziah was strong and wealthy and firm and, and uh, healthy. Uh, no, no. He was only sustained by the Lord's goodness. Let me ask you, you think you're healthy today? You think you're strong, you're whole? See, folks, we are only one heartbeat away from meeting God. And that's it. God has given you the breath that you have, and once he takes that away, that's it, nothing. This week you may hear that dreaded diagnosis. This week, you might have a stroke. Before you go to bed tonight, you might lose your mental capacity. Some parents think that that might happen just about any day, you know. (laughs) But folks, you and I are blessed by God and granted another day of health, another day of light, another day of life, only by His goodness. It's, it's the Lord that that comes from, that, that we get that blessing from. Every, everyone loses health eventually. But we pursue it like we're going to win. <laughs> like we're actually going to, what, be healthy so we can be healthy the rest of eternity here. <laughs> it doesn't work. It, you know, but we're trying. Everybody tries that, you know. But like I say, we, we almost, like we're going to somehow grasp permanent health. No, folks. The truth is, everybody loses health eventually. Well, that's discouraging. (laughs) Thanks, preacher. (laughs) Really needed that today. Well, yeah, I guess you do. I do. Death wins every time. I'm looking to a a lot of losers here. (laughs) You're all going to lose to death. And I'm going to lose to death. But death wins every time. So don't think that the health that you enjoy is eternal or a right that you must be awarded. No, no, it's a temporary blessing of God until he removes it, until he says that's enough. And then we don't have it. And by the way, why is it, let me ask you something, and and truly, folks, why is it that if a child dies, it's an affront to a loving God? 
like it's God's fault. Let me ask you something. What is anyone guaranteed? How many years are you guaranteed? No, actually, God was maybe gracious to give four years to a child or eight years of life or whatever it is. And if children are truly of the kingdom of God, as Jesus said, which they are, then they go on to an eternal reward. Isn't that a wonderful thing? Let me ask you something. Are you guaranteed 20 years? Some of you are counting up. I'm 17, so I got three. <laughs> no, really. Are you guaranteed to live till you're 20? Then if somebody dies at 25, then men become bitter for the cruelty of God, like we were guaranteed to live 30 years? Who, who guaranteed that? Where, where do we see that? Where's the contract that says, no, no, you have 30 years. You're, it's a right to live 30 years. <clears throat> I remember when I was a kid hearing that people died when they were 50 and others talked about them like, oh, they were so young. And I'd say, 50? Are you kidding? They were ancient. <laughs> Don't laugh. It's not like that anymore. I'm telling you, I'm 59 and I'm on grace right now, you know. I hear about somebody dying at 80, and I think, oh, what a young person. <laughs> Boy, it changes your perspective, doesn't it? I've met folks who vowed that they'd never set foot in a church again because of how much of a monster that God was in taking Grandma. So how old was Grandma? She was 98, but she died in her sleep, suddenly. <laughs> I'd say that's pretty good, you know. I, I don't know. <laughs> the truth is that we face death due to the consequences of our own choices. You say, what? What are you talking about? Well, the Bible says in Romans chapter 5, verse number 12, you want to know where death comes from? Wherefore, as by one man, that's Adam, talking about our father, our ancestor, our head, wherefore, as by one man, sin entered into the world, and death by sin. And so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. You know, if you want to prove the Bible true, just look at that verse. Everybody dies. All have sinned and all die. That's what the Bible says. Everybody dies because of sin. Hey, we brought this upon our own head. Father Adam was warned. Read the text. You can see how God said, don't eat of this because if you do, if you disobey, if you rebel, then you will die. You will surely die. And ever since, this is a, a testament to the validity of God's promise. You sin, you'll surely die. And not only did he sin, but I sin by nature and I sin by choice because I'm a sinner also. And just like what God said, but hey we got to quit blaming God. we got to quit blaming God for sorrow and for death and for pain. No, no, that was ours. That was my choice. That was your choice. James 4.1 says, From whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence, even of your lust, that war in your members? He says, hey, listen, people, and, and today people ask, hey, what about the injustices in the world and war and, and, and babies born that like this and that? You know what that's from? It's from sin. It's from our own lust. It's from our own choices. And then we, we hurt because of our own choices. And then blame God. No, no, no. It's not God's fault. That's what we've done. That's our choice. Like all sorrow is God's fault. Why is there pain? Why is there injustice and sorrow and woe in the world? 
we blame God, but that's ours, folks. That's ours. It's God that has overcome the curse, done all that he can so that he, he can give us eternal life and overcome the curse and overcome death. He's won against sin, death, and the grave. Thank the Lord. And he's, he's, he's won that. He's, he's a victor. But it's not, it's not God's fault. You see, what we do, though, we trust in false things, things that need to be removed so that we can see God. The things that needed to be removed were frail health and frail help and futile honor. Those things, you know what? In the year that King Uzziah died, those things were all removed. And then Isaiah says right there, that's the time I saw the Lord. What was removed? Those things that needed to be removed so our focus could be on the Lord. What was found or what was replaced? In the year the king Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up and his train filled the temple. Three things that we see here that Isaiah saw was, was it was replaced with the Lord's power. It says that he was sitting upon a throne. This is the throne of the universe. The God of gods, the king of kings, he was the supreme ruler, and he saw that. See, God was seen in his ruling sovereignty. He's on the throne of the universe, ruling and reigning. And that's what he saw. We've got to see God in this way to subject all ambitions and all will to his. Otherwise, we're, we're on the throne ourselves. Or something else is. No, no, that's God's place. He saw the Lord and the Lord's power. His position. Then he also saw the Lord's preeminence. It says that he was high and lifted up. And his train filled the temple. Not a choo-choo train. This is talking about like a robe. You know, you have a, a king that, that has the, the regal robe. And the, 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 uh, the following, sometimes it's a few feet or whatever. That's his train. The longer the train, the more majestic, the more, the, the more powerful the ruler. This says his train filled the temple. That's because he's the supreme God. That train was the robe of the king. The longer the train, the more majestic the ruler. It's the ultimate ruler, the king of all kings, the highest, the strongest, the wisest, the most powerful. And you think you're smarter than God? By saying, well, you know, God, listen, I got my plan. I know you said if we tithe and we're supposed to tithe and then you'll bless us. And you do. But you know what, God? Uh, I've got a better plan today. What? He says to, to honor him, to lift him, put him first. And, well, you know, God, uh, I'm going I'm to operate my life a little bit differently. Oh, really? Who are you? Little nothing. And here's the one who sits on the throne of the universe, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. When we get a, when we get a hold, when we, we understand who God is, then that will help us to see the Lord's prominence and preeminence. And then he saw the Lord's purity. This is what he saw. This God, as the, the angels before him, who are covering their face and their feet because of the holiness that they were before. And, and they, were, they were ashamed to come into his presence because of his purity and his brightness and his holiness. And, and what the angels cried out was, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. He's known for his holiness. God is holy, apart from sin, beyond, above sin. And because of that, we are to be separated from sin also. Be ye holy, for I am holy, the Lord says. 
That's the continual battle that believers face is to be like God in that way because we're surrounded by, just as Isaiah said, man, then I looked at myself. I saw me in God's presence, in his holiness, and a man of unclean lips surrounded by unclean people and in filth, and that's where he was. It's when we see just how holy he is that it's contrasted to our sinfulness. But folks, I'm telling you, we don't get a picture of who God is if we're focused on the temporary, if we're focused on what we have. That's why I like that verse, and it's, it's a verse that we use for funerals, but it, boy, does it apply. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse number 2, it says, it's better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting, for that is the end of all men and the living will lay it to his heart. He says, you know what? It's better to go to a funeral than it is to a party. You know why? It's better for you and I. Because it puts us in our place. It helps us to see that we're here and we're gone. We're frail. This what we have is, is not permanent. This is what we enjoy and what surrounds us and what, what takes our focus and our attention and, and everything that we have. Hey, it's here and it's gone. And you can't hang on to it. The living should lay that to heart. Folks, when we are in his presence, then we see who God is. And those, those other things have got to be taken away, removed first, so that we can see the Lord high and lifted up. Every head bowed, nobody looking for just a moment. <clears throat>